three times as many low resiliency businesses have no well-being initiatives in place compared to high resiliency businesses. So to your point, you know, the organizations who are investing in well-being are also the highly resilient businesses. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature podcast series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. I'm Paul Washington, Executive Director of the ESG Center of the Conference Board and the guest host of today's podcast. In today's conversation, we'll discuss operational resilience. What is it? How do companies and other organizations cultivate it? And how can CEOs themselves be more resilient? Joining me today is John Ball, CEO of Agility Recovery and Preparus. Agility allows businesses to build and manage a modern continuity strategy through the Preparus platform with flexibility to prepare and respond with recovery services all in one. Welcome, John. Delighted to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Hey, John, to start, can you tell me a little bit about how you became CEO of Agility? Um, Was greatness thrust upon you? Did you achieve it? Were you born to it? How how did you become CEO? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I actually was really lucky nearly 15 years ago as I was making a a career change. I, I landed at a software company that uh, sold to nonprofits, and it gave me this realization that you could have uh, both a career in sales and financial wins that come with that, along with being able to do good in the community around all of us. And so five years ago, when agility popped up on my radar, I looked at that as a criteria. One, you know, did I think it was a growing business or growing market? market with a need, but two, and probably more importantly to me, did it have a mission that I'd be excited about? And the idea of being able to make our communities more resilient resonated with me because I could have the coexistence of both growth, but also the opportunity to really fulfill a mission. And and so agility has been that for me over the last five years now. It's really interesting you say that because there's a lot, there are a lot of um, folks who say, well, Younger folks these days, they want a sense of purpose. They want a sense of mission. It's it's not just for the younger generations, actually. We found it, you know, we found it actually with corporate directors who are looking for being on the board of a company that has an important purpose and mission because they often have choices to be on a lot of boards in a lot of places. But this this sense of purpose and mission is, is really animating for a, a lot of people, and it's not just because of the pandemic; it it predates it. So I, I'm, you know, delighted you've got the job and that you're here with us today. I'd like to think I'm one of those younger people, Paul. But you, uh, know, you know, no, I didn't mean to suggest that you were anything but, <laughs> um, you know, wet behind the ears here. Anyway, uh, so let's let's talk about resilience, you know, which is the subject of a report that the conference board issued earlier this summer in collaboration with you. It's called making operation resilience a competitive advantage. So how do you define operational resilience? Yeah, so I think there's the traditional definition of resilience, an ability to maintain flexibility and adaptability when facing organization challenges. And this could be people, financial or operational in nature. 
at Agility, we, we take that one step further. We think about operational resiliency as an organization's capability to plan, respond, and recover from some type of significant operational interruption that could impair the organization's ability to deliver for their customers, their products, and their services. And as you can imagine, that still applies to people, financial, and operational. We also believe that resiliency has to be achievable and, and simple for everybody, right? So our goal is how do we move resiliency from how it was approached in the past, being very robust, very complex, to something that's more simplistic. And so as we think about this next chapter of resiliency, we really wanna think about a chapter of simplicity and accessibility for everyone. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me. There was, I mean, I've been around long enough where um, the folks who are tasked with operational resilience sort of sat over in a corner and they had their playbooks and their procedures and occasionally they were tasked with, uh, you know, being involved in a crisis. But I, I love the idea of demystifying and simplifying the notion of resilience and making it available to everyone. Because obviously, you know, if there's a significant disruption, you know, it's not just a handful of people who have to make sure that you can uh, recover uh, from it and get back to business, but it's, it's a much broader group. So I, I love that notion of simplifying it. So, you know, on, on that score, you know, I think almost every company's resilience as you defined it, has been tested in the past few years by, by the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, you know, supply chain disruptions and so forth. Um, you know, based on the survey we field of, fielded of almost 150 resilience professionals, by the way, that's a label we applied to these people because they don't actually call themselves that because these are people involved in crisis management, <clears throat> risk assessment, um, business continuity, those sorts of things. So we, we asked 150 of these folks and 90% of respondents looking ahead said see an increase in threats to operational resilience in the coming couple of years. Where do you see the threats coming from primarily these days? Or where it may be the shorter answer is where don't you see the threats coming from? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that may be the shorter answer, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about five that, that we saw. So in our recent research, there were really five disruptions that resiliency professionals called out in particular. Cyber attacks, economic uncertainty, supply chain disruptions, weather-related events, and talent retention challenges. And so I'll probably leave economic uncertainty for the economists. And you know, mm -hmm. though, though recent reports seem to be forecasting a better picture in the coming months, I, I probably won't delve into that topic. When I speak to our customers, there's no doubt that cyber-related concerns are at the top of the list for them. And what they're seeing is these attacks don't just affect their reputation. In fact, there was some recent research done where 29% of all organizations affected by a ransomware attack had to lay off employees. And 26% of those organizations were actually forced to close their business altogether. Meanwhile, supply chain disruptions often can be another outcome of, of cyber attacks. And so what we're seeing as an organization is more tests and more exercises being conducted than ever before to ensure there's the right plan and the right response strategy in place to respond to these uh, disruptions. And we're seeing more and more third-party vendors participate in these tests and exercises. And the reason for that is if they don't have a response plan in place, but you rely on them, you're just as vulnerable as they are to the cyber attack. 
The fourth one that I mentioned is weather-related events. And as we all know or have experienced in some way, weather-related events are becoming both more frequent and more devastating. Just through right the middle of October of this year, there have already been 24 confirmed weather or climate disaster events with losses exceeding a billion dollars each, which is far more than what we've seen annually in the last five years, which was about 18 events. The fifth threat and the, the final one I'll, I'll mention today is the pressure on talent retention. And agility hasn't been immune to this. Like many others, we're facing tremendous challenges around talent. The labor market for all of us has, has changed forever. So at Agility, we focused on what we talked about earlier, our mission as an organization, an opportunity to make a difference in the communities around all of us, doing more just generally in the community, providing tremendous employee development opportunities, and lastly, a focus on what we call alumni management, right? Those individuals who left our business, who were tremendous um, contributors that may come back to the business at the next chapter in their career. It really helpful. You know, I'm struck by a few things that you said there. First, um, it is a broad range of, of risks. You know, uh, I think sometimes operational resilience is, you know, it's put under phys physical security in a company or it's under IT or it's, you know, it's a little bit siloed, frankly, with folks who don't necessarily have the, the, the breadth of, of perspective um, or, or uh, influence even. Um, to address some of these other topics like talent threats. I mean, think about the strikes in um, against the auto manufacturers or the strikes in Hollywood, right? Those are those are talent threats to the operational resilience of your organization. And if resilience of those firms is is handled somewhere that doesn't sort of look at the human picture, that's you know that that that's a gap. So I think the breadth of, of types of threats is really interesting that you talked about. The second thing you talked about is how these are interconnected. These are not silos. So when you're doing your risk assessment and so forth, <clears throat> you can't look at this as, oh, it's just supply chain. Let's just deal with that on its own. No, it's interconnected sometimes with cyber and so forth. Um, the third thing is you can't look at it in isolation, even just with respect to your own company. You're part of a broader ecosystem. So I think those are three really you know, powerful takeaways for our audience, which is the breadth of these, the interconnected nature of these 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 risks, and they 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 can build on each other too. You know, one can lead to the next. So, um, really, really helpful comments there. So, another thing that's striking from our research that we did with you is the difference between CEOs and the those with day-to-day -day responsibility for resilience. You know, we, we asked CEOs, this was in a survey we did earlier this year at the conference board, and CEOs around the globe believe that their organizations are not well prepared for literally any of 15 types of major risks, and that included um, economic disruptions, pandemic, and so forth, while resilience professionals have a much more sanguine view about their preparedness, right? I, I'll just give you one, one example, which is highly relevant today as we're you know, watching the events in Ukraine still unfold and, and between Israel and, and Hamas, you know, only 8% of CEOs we surveyed around the world say that they're prepared for geopolitical conflict, whereas 60% of resilience professionals say they are. So what do you think, how do you, how do you explain 
the difference, this gap here. Um, and uh, and what what you know, who's got it right? Or do they both have it right and they're just not talking to each other? So what, what's your take on all of this? The statistics you just shared one step further, what, what we saw as we looked at it is 55% of all resiliency professionals believe their organs ready, organizations ready to respond to most events. And an additional 42% believe they could respond to some events. In other words, 97% of resiliency professionals felt like at a minimum they could respond to some events, if not all. Meanwhile, we contrast that with the survey you referenced of 670 global CEOs who had those 15 specific disruptions you mentioned. None of them had more than 49% saying they were prepared on those 15 specific ones. And in half of them, 80% of CEOs didn't believe they were prepared. So to your point, the disconnect is pretty vast. Now, I believe the difference stems from a, def a different definition of preparedness. So to your mm -hmm. point, I think they're they're probably both right. Resiliency professionals believe they have the right processes and the right programs in place. What CEOs are acknowledging and recognizing is that broad-based awareness of these programs and their organizations doesn't exist today. And that preparedness and resiliency is not a fabric of the company culture today. And it's going to take, and I think you referenced this this few minutes ago, it's going to take everyone in the business for true resiliency to exist. So are the programs and processes in place? I believe they are, and resiliency professionals have done well there. But on the flip side, we haven't created, for lack of a better word, global awareness within an organization to make sure that when an event happens, everyone knows exactly what their role is in response to that event. Yeah, and I think I'm struck by the fact that in some ways, resilience, this notion of resilience is, it, it, it sits sort of where sustainability sat about five to 10 years ago within organizations. It was, you know, environmental or social sustainability. They were off sort of in a siloed area, three to four levels below the CEO in an organization. And they were often viewed as sort of a nice to do or an obligation or something like that, a cost center it wasn't woven into the strategy, the operations of the organization, into the culture of the organization. Now, sustainability has sort of moved up and is viewed as even a competitive advantage, but resilience isn't there yet. So let's talk about that. Like, how, how can companies make operational resilience um, not just a compliance obligation or an expense, but a true competitive advantage, the ability to get products and services to the market when others can't, you know, that's a competitive advantage. It's also serving, you know, the public and, and, and your own employees and being able to do that. So how do you make that shift from this is an obligation, it's, a, it's an exercise that these people with playbooks and, you know, green eye shades make us do once a year to something that's actually part of the fabric of an organization and viewed as a competitive advantage? Yeah, so I'm going to answer this in, in two ways. One, right, the, the competitive advantages are huge, as you just talked about. One, they're showing your employees you care and you're committed to their well-being. In fact, an amazing stat around that is three times as many low-resiliency businesses have no well-being initiatives in place compared to high-resiliency businesses. So to your point, you know, the organizations who are investing in well-being are also the highly resilient businesses because it goes beyond just 
that siloed function. Two, there's conviction in being able to support your customers, right? Regardless of the potential disruption to your business or to your supply chain. And three, leading organizations are adopting these best practices to face the challenges ahead. What's truly separating these organizations is how they use it. For example, I met with a senior resiliency professional at a 35,000 employee technology organization. And in our entire conversation, she shared with me how she uses their resiliency program to help their salespeople close deals, how they help drive revenue, and how they help lower costs by being able to plan, respond, and recover quickly to support their customers. And so it was really fascinating to hear her articulate the critical role that the risk program played in the business's overall growth strategy. That's truly what it looks like to have it as a competitive advantage. Now, the second part of your question is, you know, what are some of the elements that are making resilience a competitive advantage at this particular company or at any company? And I think it goes back to what we've talked about. How do we make it a fabric of the culture of the organization? How do you make your risk function, your resiliency function responsible for more than just resiliency, but really being a strategic arm of the business? And then it's how do you make it a part of culture? So just like anything else, you create clarity of its importance. You have senior sponsorship. You create ongoing awareness. You make it part of the values of the organization and you hire, recognize, and you promote people who model this behavior into the business. And then the second part of making it more strategic, we've got to move our resiliency teams across um, all organizations beyond program structure and beyond process, ensuring that their senior leaders capable of bridging strategy along with process, much like you would a COO type role. And they've got to understand the function, but also understand how to run the business for true interplay across resiliency and business strategy to coexist. From our research, the good news is 74% of organizations are increasing spend in this area. So I believe the commitment already exists in organizations. The dollars and resources are being put ahead. And now it's a matter of those dollars and resources, you know, catching up with what we're seeing from a results perspective. But we've seen a distinct movement in the market. Modern resiliency professionals are moving towards simplicity over complexity, as we talked about, but also making it more accessible in the organization. In essence, it's moving business continuity from a vacuum, like you talked about in sustainability, to a more decentralized approach where everyone feels invested. Yeah, I love that. I love the way, too, that, that you're, the CEO you're talking to tied resilience to um, service of their stakeholders, right? It was in, it's part of what made them better for their customers, better for their employees, probably better for their communities, right? As well as for the company and its investors. So, and linking resilience to something you're doing for 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 others, I think is a, is a powerful motivator and, and helps to make the case for resilience in a way that um, may not have been made before. So look, um, you know, we've been talking about what operational resilience is, the state of it today, um, next, we're going to turn to some other aspects, including the, the human side of resilience. So we're going to take a short break and be right back with more of my conversation with John Ball, CEO of Agility. What does the future of work mean for your employees? How will your company navigate ESG? Will there be a global recession? At the conference board, 
Our experts translate the latest research and economic analysis into insights and real-time problem solving for your organization. Membership at the Conference Board provides your team with an assortment of knowledge from economics, marketing and communications, ESG, public policy, and human capital. As a member, you'll have access to our center experts, member-exclusive events, data and benchmarking tools, and peer sharing that will help you understand the present and shape the future. Consider becoming a Conference Board member today by visiting www.conference-board.org. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Paul Washington, Executive Director of the ESG Center at the Conference Board. I'm joined today by John Ball, CEO of Agility. Um, I want to turn to a, one of the more interesting um, items that came out of our roundtable discussion with resilience professionals. I, I was struck by their focus on the, on the human side of resilience. And John, you referred to this earlier in terms of companies that focus on resilience, they care more about the mental and physical well-being of their employees. You know, companies can have all the playbooks, procedures, and best practices in place, but if their people aren't resilient, you know, the company's not going to be resilient. And, and the folks we talked to were particularly concerned about how remote work could undermine the personal bonds of trust that are so important when a company needs to respond to a crisis. So can you talk a little bit more about the, the human side of resilience and, and how companies work to have a, a truly resilient workforce, a really resilient culture? I was struck similar to you on the emphasis on people from, from those earlier discussions. The, the emphasis on people was clear and it was inspiring to hear the focus on ensuring the safety and well-being of, of their teams. Every organization's success is, is built on the foundation of people. In fact, right, the knowledge economy is becoming more and more important in the overall evolution of business. So it's reinforcing the criticality of ensuring a resilient workforce. In fact, ensuring a resilient workforce may be the top challenge of our industry today. The needs of individual employees varies to such a high degree that how you ensure the mental and physical well-being of an individual and person is incredibly challenging. At its simplest level, we can ensure a safe workplace environment, right? A response to hazardous materials or an active shooter event as examples of that. However, the this, this psychological threats can be much greater. So how do you how do your employees feel about a particular event, which could be highly personal or much more widespread? Is it a loved one facing cancer? Is it the wars that you reference in Ukraine or Israel that may weigh on somebody's mind? An organization needs to create ways to give employees space where they need it, while also ensuring a productive and growing company. As you mentioned, remote work is only compounding these issues. Interpersonal interaction is a great accelerant of vulnerability-based trust. It provides opportunities to connect people in ways that feel more personal, creating bonds that are more difficult to create remotely. We'll see less facades that can occur over a screen in a simple meeting and learn more about how someone shows up throughout the day faced with a variety of interactions. A recent Fortune article featured an expert from Accenture, who I believe sums up the three key leadership characteristics in the age of hybrid work really well. Leaders must have compassion and display empathy. They must be constantly learning 
and they must show humility. Yeah. And, you know, and I'll, I'll add something else that we've come across recently in, in some work that we've done with boards of directors who also, by the way, need to be resilient. And, you know, we've, we've actually seen a decline in in-person board meetings and so forth. It's important for your board members to get together. But what came out in the discussion with boards was, was the notion of diversity on your boards. And the more, and this applies to workforces more broadly, that the more board members um, felt comfortable sharing their personal stories, the more authentic their engagements with others, and the deeper the bonds of trust that existed. So there's actually a pretty, we found in our research, a, a really direct connection between so called it authentic DEI efforts, right? Em embracing that that authenticity, that inclusivity, that really helped forge the bonds of trust among directors who saw each other not as just oh, uh, you know, this is the person who shows up and asks annoying questions every couple of months or something like that, but actually a full fledged human being. That 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 depth of connection coming through um, an appreciation and embracing of diversity actually reinforced those bonds of trust. I don't know if you've got a thought about that, but it was it was striking to me how those two things went hand in hand. Yeah, I think that diversity of thought is, is absolutely critical. And I think it goes beyond that. It goes be to that idea of inclusivity, a sense mm -hmm. of belonging and a sense of connection. And so when we talk about trust, we really talk about vulnerability-based trust. And the reason we do that is because People have to feel comfortable and safe in that environment to provide their perspective. And by having a diverse and inclusive board or organization, you're encouraging different thoughts to rise to the surface, which obviously is the most impactful for an organization. Yeah, different thoughts and, and recognizing different types of people around the room and the, 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 the deeper bonds of trust, which are so important during these times of crisis. So let's talk about the person who may have the loneliest job in some ways at a company, which is the CEO. So, you know, CEOs are people too. You can pause and just reflect on that. Yes, CEOs are people too. And it's critical for them to be resilient. They're under enormous pressure. And, you know, often a lot of the people, their trusted advisors, you know, they're they're also looking for something for their own professional advancement and so forth. So, you know, it's it can be a little tricky. So what advice do you have for CEOs in terms of both assessing and enhancing their own resilience? Because there's also kind of, I would suspect, I've worked with a number of CEOs, the notion that you've got to be a superhero for everyone else. And that can be pretty taxing. So how does the CEO sort of assess and enhance their own resilience? Yeah. When, you know, you, you, you joked about the loneliest job. When I became CEO for the first time five years ago, by far the most frequently mentioned caution to me was the CEO job is, is the loneliest in the, in the business. And so it, it resonates with me. And while I think that may be true, I also know I'm surrounded by a tremendous team of supportive leaders. I have an incredibly supportive board of directors and a, and a business that's, that's doing well. Yet many situations are isolated in making that, that final decision where you're trying to balance the interests of the board, advocacy for all of your employees, and also you know, representing the shared values with, with your leadership team. So I'm not sure if I'm the best person to give advice on 
you know, how you assess it, because I think it can be a, a struggle for all of us, regardless of role. So I can speak what I try to focus on mm -hmm. personally, which is two primary areas, um, one of which uh, you already hit on, which is I think we have to, as leaders, be authentic. And so I do many things on behalf of the team, our leaders, or our board, some of which they may not love, but hopefully the majority of the decisions are supported by all of those stakeholders. In those times of disagreement, the reason I come out the other side is that people see that I'm being true to what I believe. I'll be responsible for the outcome. I'll create clarity around it. I'll speak openly about the decisions and if needed, I'll, I'll own my mistakes. And people wanna work for leaders that they can trust and that they can relate to. And so authenticity helps bridge that, that gap. The second thing that I focus in on and that I try to take stock of and measure for myself is, am I being sustainable? I don't really believe in this idea of work-life balance, right? Because that suggests that all weeks, all months can be exact same. And that's just not what the CEO's job offers. What I want to be and what I try to keep a measure on is, am I being sustainable for the long term? Long term, excuse me. Knowing that some weeks, my job might require 100% of my focus and effort. And in exchange, there are times when I'm less needed in the business and can give my, my family my full time and attention. And so I'm constantly thinking about what does this particular moment in time or chapter in the business require for me? And what are the sacrifices I have to make? And understanding that to be sustainable, I'm going to have some trends that go up and down. And as you would imagine, this requires really open communication at home, highly supported mm -hmm. family, but also open communication in the business and with my leadership. So, John, I love what you just said about not only this notion of um, sustainability over, over time, and it, it will be up and down, but also the, the notion of just being true to your own values and how you conduct yourself which helps to, I think, alleviate some of the stress that comes with having to make those decisions. If you're comfortable about the criteria and the process you use and you're authentic and true to your values, that that helps personal resilience and it frankly probably makes the job of CEO more sustainable. So really thoughtful answer. You know, so look, John, thank you so much for, for joining us today for this really fascinating discussion on on both operational and frankly personal resilience great to be with you today paul and and thanks to all of you for listening to ceo perspectives every week we're joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time we'll cover the leading topics in economics public policy esg human capital and more please feel free to share ceo perspectives with your colleagues your CEO, for example, who, who, who may need a, a like you know, little encouragement in their job, and anyone else you think might enjoy this podcast. I'm Paul Washington, and this series has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.